Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 106 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Terrence Walton. Terrence is the Chief Operating Officer for the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. Now, NADCP is the premier training, membership, and advocacy organization for the treatment court model which includes over 3,000 programs found in every state, four territories, and over 20 countries. And Terrence also penned the foreword to my book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going. So we have a really, really good conversation about life and the leader's journey. Before we jump into that conversation, I want to invite you to join me in Orlando. That's right. If you're in the Orlando area or if you got family and friends in the Orlando area, Make plans to join me and my friends on January 19th at the University of Central Florida for the Find Your Courage Tour. We're on a book tour, leadership workshop tour, helping leaders face their fears and and find the courage to keep going. So January 19th at the University of Central Florida, early bird tickets are still available. You can find more information at Courage Orlando dot eventbrite.com that's courage orlando dot eventbrite.com okay here's my featured conversation with terrence walton so i'm excited today to have a conversation with mr terrence walton from the national association of drug court professionals husband father i mean all around great guy Okay. <laughs> and and I consider him a mentor and friend. So yeah. I'm excited. I'm grateful that you took a few minutes to chat with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad uh, to do it. So talk to me about NADCP and your role here. How, how did you get here? Well, uh, the National Association of Drug Corps Professionals is a national nonprofit. Uh, we represent and lead the drug treatment court field. Now, drug treatment courts are, are, are courts, but they're courts specifically for people who are living with addiction and mental health issues who are a part of the system because of those issues. And drug courts work with uh, doctors and treatment providers and judges and lawyers to create programs and opportunities for those men and women uh, to, um, to receive effective treatment instead of incarceration. So it's a big deal. It's been around for, this is our th- the 30th anniversary of the drug court field. The first drug court was opened in 1989 and the 25th anniversary of NADCP. I've been a part of it uh, as uh, in this role as chief operating officer for about five years uh, and many years before that as a consultant. And, you know, how I got here, that's a that, that's more time than we have. Uh, you know, really, it's it's a, it's this next step in, in, you know, you know, Pierre, a journey that that began for me about 30 years ago when I took my first job uh, as a tech on a treatment center, uh, in the treatment center for, for kids, my first job in the field. Um, and uh, lots of other opportunities in between there. And currently here, really helping to lead this movement, uh, both in this in the U.S. and nationally. So let's go back. When right. you were in high school, were you when you were in college, yeah. did you see yourself, did you even know what drug court was, and I, did you see yourself working <laughs> in this capacity? Well, I, I didn't know what drug court was. I understood addiction. Okay. Um, you know, I understood it from uh, people in my family. Uh, you know, I have an uncle who uh, was my favorite uncle, my, my mother's brother who uh, lived with alcoholism mm-hmm. for most of his life until the end when he got into recovery. 
Um, and I had, you know, some other interest in, in, in awareness of it. But 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 no, I was going to be I was gonna be a minister. Uh, you know, from the time I was a little kid, I always knew I wanted to preach the word. I never wanted to do anything else. Um, I went um, to a school you've heard of, Oakwood College, um, for a little time. And at that college decided, I, I don't want to be a, a pastor. That's not what I want to do with my life. I'm not even sure why I decided that. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is no joke. I was, that's what I always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of support at a mentor who was a pastor there who worked with the conference to give me a scholarship as a freshman, which didn't happen, you know. Um, so there was a lot of pressure for yeah. me to pursue this that I always wanted. And while there, I decided not. I now know God had a different path for me, a different kind of ministry. And so, no, it's not what I thought I'd be doing. Uh, but I did know that I'd be doing something um, uh, that was about helping people, that was about leading, that involved teaching and speaking. Um, I, I, I then didn't know, though, what the issue was. I didn't know what, what I cared most about. I discovered that almost by mistake, um, at least on the surface. Talk to me about the importance of being patient, because now you're in the C-suite, and I want you to break, to demystify the C-suite for us, but you've been on this professional journey mm-hmm. And now you sit in a in a leadership role for a major association, yeah. but you you did groundwork and grunt work yeah. and and jobs that you didn't like, yeah. and you didn't you know today's culture we want to skip a lot of steps yeah and we want to go yeah. straight to the to the corner office. What's the value in this part of the journey? Well, I, I, you know that's here? that's a really really good question. I'm glad you asked it because it is the you know I mentor uh, some emerging leaders and some current leaders who mm-hmm. are. Who are trying to go to the next level, and, and we spent some time talking about that, what that looks like. So the first thing for me, I just talk about my experience, was even when I was doing work that had nothing to do with the with the the path I thought I would be on, you know, I really tried to give it my best. You know, I really, if there were, if it was something I had to learn, I tried to learn it, and in the process, I tried to be a part of good organizations. I I, I watched what what effective leaders did. Um, and mostly, especially as I began to say, okay, I want to make addiction my field, I made a concerted effort to, to, to build my expertise, to become exceptionally competent in the subject matter and to see where that led. So it, it began, you know, I did, you know, I was a tech on a treatment center, which was basically my full job was to, um, you know, I had to collect urines for urine testing. I had to keep the kids from, you know, killing each other, and and it was the lowest level there you could get. But it was at that level that I realized, hey, this is what I want to be doing. This is what matters to me. It happened to be a really well-run treatment center, so I got to see how it looks when you have a treatment center where people have money and they can get the best of care. And um, uh, and, and so I did that job for a while. I did, you know, eventually uh, got certified. Eventually got a degree. Uh, and began doing direct service counseling, you know, as a, just as a, as a one-on-one counselor, group counselor. And, and I didn't do that for a long time. I did it for about six or seven years. And, uh, and I'm so glad I did. It gave me perspective, uh, Pierre, that I would never have had otherwise, that, that, that helped me even today as I work with people who are working with people who are doing that now. And, I don't, I, and, that, and that's been important. But, but because, especially in my field, I was you know, really effective as a counselor, really effective at helping people, we almost always end up getting promoted to supervisors. That just happens, whether you want to or not. 
we almost end up in that position. And it's really there, my first supervisor position, that I had a decision to make. I decided, okay, is this what I like? Is this what I want to do? And how do I do it more effectively? And I spent a long time in supervisor positions, then eventually middle management, then, then went to the federal government. I worked there for 15 years uh, in, a, in a senior position there, uh, and then made the tough decision to leave um, that good, secure federal job um, for what I'm doing here. Uh, but it was a journey. Uh, and But I can say I believe, honestly, that I worked just as hard at my first position as this one. And almost as many hours sometimes. It's just how I, you know, it, it, it's what I did. And, and everything I learned in those earlier positions, if I had moved too soon, if I had advanced too quickly, and a couple of times I came close to doing that, if I advanced too quickly, I would have made some mistakes uh, that I was able to avoid by giving it more time. So, yeah, it's about patience. But, but it's also about knowing, you know, when to go to the next level. So, one more thing, one more thing. Um, most people don't know this, but while I was an excellent student in high school and college, I actually spent 10 years getting my undergrad. And once I left Oakwood and was no longer going to you know, study theology, I didn't know what I was going to study. So I took different courses. I got a full-time job. Uh, I was a business major for a minute. I moved to communications. Then I moved to something else before I ended up in psychology. And all the time I was working. But, but, but that was giving me, you know, that, that was 10 years of figuring out what I wanted to do and being sure that I, I was prepared to do so. And um, that was really valuable time. Uh, so that by, the, by the time I, you know, uh, had reached where I needed to, you know, uh, academically and got my master's right away after that, I was positioned uh, to be in leadership positions. Um, um, and... Um, but it was a journey, and it was, and it required me to do the groundwork. It required me to know when it was time to move. What most people don't know is that what most propelled me to finish my degree is because the first job I had, where I was a tech, mm -hmm. the lowest level position there, mm -hmm. lowest level position, I was very young, just barely out of high school, and when the director left, Several people asked me credibly, oh, are you planning to apply for his job? That, that was a ridiculous question to me. I didn't have a degree. I had almost no experience. They saw something in me that I really didn't even see in myself. Yeah. They, they, were, they, they were serious. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do that. It wasn't time for that. But it made me think, well, dude, wow, what would you need to do? Because this is what you want to do. You'd love to run something like this. What do you need to do so that the next time that door opens, or a time that opens, you can walk through it? And that got me serious about what I wanted to do. I spent the next two years finishing off that first degree, went right to graduate school. Um, but it was that moment. It was, it was people around me, colleagues, superiors to me, seeing something in me that I really didn't see in myself yet. Uh, that propelled me to begin to uh, move forward. So yes, it's about patience, mm -hmm. but it's also about while you're being patient, be preparing mm. um, and and have yourself where that when that opportunity opens, you, you know you can 
at least put your hat in the ring. We've both been around people who their community or support group has looked at them and said, I see something in you, but for whatever reason, they didn't lean in. What are the factors that contribute to a person leaning into when someone says, I see something? And what are the factors that cause people to, no matter what people say in reference to their gifts and talents, to not take hold of it and and run with it? You know, I, I don't I don't know the answer to that fully. Um, I, I think it, it's it's a combination of things. I think sometimes um, uh, we, we're hearing things from people that really confirm uh, what, on some level, we've always known. Uh, I've always known, like I had a calling. Yeah. You know, and, and again, when I went through my period where I was no longer sure which direction that calling was, it was still there. But I got involved in life and working and making money, and I was single then and trying to not to be and all of that. And, and so I'd forgotten, you know, that there were some things that were really important I was supposed to do. And, 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 and I believe that God used those people, and that's how I view it, used those people to remind me. Uh, it really was a ridiculous question. There was no way I could have gotten or should have applied for that. But, but that's, that, that serious inquiry reminded me of what I'd already known. I spent much of my life as a, as a, as a young kid studying uh, presidents and preachers, uh, people in leadership. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, uh, consciously and otherwise, I guess, sort of modeling myself after them. And so they saw some of that. So sometimes it's confirmation of what you already know. But, but it also required me to accept uh, both my strengths as well as my weaknesses, mm-hmm. uh, what I said to you earlier is my demons, mm-hmm. to understand that they are there mm-hmm. and, to, and to be willing to do the work on those because that was getting in the way. You know, it, it can make us feel not worthy, not good enough, uh, and, and certainly afraid. <laughs> it can make us feel that, Definitely. you know, these people don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know all of me. And if they knew all of me, they wouldn't be even suggesting that. And that, that can really... I think there are people right now who are listening to this and watching this. Well, that's where they are. They know all of them, and that stops them from moving forward. And so for me, and it's, and it's an ongoing journey, but for me to accept um, sort of what God has for me, to accept the, the leadership positions that I always find myself in, it was both recognizing my own weaknesses, the things I need to be careful of, being willing to deal with them, but also recognize that all of us, you know, are leading while wounded. We're all working wounded and that we just want to be sure we are doing the best we can uh, most days. Uh, so, yeah, I think sometimes it's comp- we, we, we lean in. We can accept that because it confirms what we already know, what was revealed to us much earlier. Uh, when it doesn't happen, even if we know we could, could do it, it's, it's that other stuff that, um, that we don't see in other people. We see in ourselves and we feel unworthy or afraid um, uh, that it, you know, either won't go well uh, or it will go well and we won't be able to handle it at the mm. top. Well, you mentioned leading while wounded and many times the wounds that we get throughout our experiences lead to us being fearful, lead to us being scared. Sure. And this is the premise behind my new book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to yeah. Keep Going, which in this special edition that we're doing of the book, you wrote the forward for, and I'm very appreciative 
uh, for that. Can you, can you talk to us maybe about a time in your professional experience, maybe in the distant past or recent past, where you recognized that you had to do it afraid, yeah. that even though some things happened to you in the past, you still had to find the courage sure. just, just to keep going? Well, well, I'll give the recent past. Um, I could, there's a whole list. <laughs> That's the truth. There's a whole list. I, you know, I, I believe that you know, faith and fear can coexist. Mm-hmm. You know, the real faith is moving forward even when you're afraid. Yeah. So that's real courage to me and real faith. So I, I know a lot there. I give lots of examples. But, but a very recent one, uh, I mentioned that I was with the federal government for 15 years. I was in a, a senior position there. I was on the path for, uh, you know, an SES, an, an executive level position there, and was knew the job well, did the organization well, was well regarded there. Um, and 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 because I was officially law enforcement and had been there for 15 years, if I had hung on for just a few more years, um, I could have retired as a relatively young man with a full federal pension and then go and do something else. Mm-hmm. And that was a very it's what my colleagues did. It's what my, my colleagues, those others who were at my position, they all did that. They all decided I don't, that's a that's a reasonable decision. You know, hang on. You can retire and then get a different job with the security of a, of a nice federal pension. Um, uh, and it occurred to me about two years before I left that it was time to go. Uh, you know, I was impressed that, that I didn't come here to stay here. I didn't come to this agency, to the federal government, to retire from the federal government. I came for a purpose, and that purpose was fulfilled. And, and, and that there was something else I had that wasn't necessarily bigger, but broader that had a broader impact nationally and internationally. And so the thought of that was exciting to me, um, but at that same time, I also now had a family. You know, I got married in my 30s and um, you know, had my first kid uh, right around that time, you know, uh, and, and right around the time I was making this decision. And so there are lots of reasons to stay put, lots of reasons to, now it wasn't just me, it wasn't just me and my wife, because we were kind of ride or die, she would go wherever I go, but now I also had a little girl. Uh, and, um, and I said, if I just hang around here, it makes sense. If I just hang around for a few more years, go ahead and retire from here, then I can go and speak and do whatever I want to do. Um, and it, I became increasingly impressed. The more time I spent in prayer, the more time I spent in meditation, the more time I spent pondering, it was clear it was time to go. Uh, and I was afraid. There's just no question about that. And uh, I was afraid that even though I knew this organization, you know, I didn't know from the inside. Um, and there is a stability in federal work that seemed, and I was doing, I was director of treatment, doing the work in my field. Um, but I knew it was time to go. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I faced that fear. You know, I took the big step and did so. Um, and it could have turned out lots of ways. I, I'll land on my feet regardless. Uh, but, but sometimes, you know, you don't land on your feet initially. You have to struggle back up. But it ended up being the best professional decision I've ever made. I loved what I was doing. Have close relationships right now. Some of the people I talk about mentoring are people from that life uh, who are still there. Um, but clearly, only once I had made the leap, you know, did I realize, oh, wow, it was time for this. Not only was I energized in a different way, not only did I have this flood of ideas of new ways, I could take what we were doing in D.C. and expand that nationally, internationally. 
Um, it was all of that. Um, um, but, but it also positioned me to see and do and experience things that could have never happened where I was. Um, but that was, of all my career decisions, of all my professional decisions, the one that I was most afraid of. And if not for my sort of belief that this was something that God wanted me to do, um, I don't know that I could have done it. Um, I don't know that I could have because it was full of uncertainty. you know. And, uh, and at least on paper, if I laid it out, it made sense to stay where I was at least for a few more years. Yeah. Now you're here in ADCP. Can you demystify what it means to be a C-suite executive? Because <laughs> there's a lot of aspiration. Yeah. You know, we yeah. business school, undergrad, or growing up, I want to be a CEO. Yeah. I want to be a COO. I want to sit in the boardroom, the conference room. Yeah. And we have this glamorous picture of leadership at this level. What's the reality yeah. of leadership at this level? Well, the reality is, um, if you are a leader, if you aspire to leadership, you know, and if that's something which, you know, is part of you, um, there are a lot of parts about that which are wonderful. That, that, that no matter what, how stressful your environment is, in leadership, you have more ability to do something about that. And so with all the stress that I face, uh, my stress is a little different than the stress I faced when I was in diff in a position that didn't have much influence. You know, I, I couldn't do much about it. So that part is great. That part fits well with my personality, with with my job satisfaction. But what probably most surprised me is the amount of time and energy I need to invest in everybody else. That I actually had a lot more time <laughs> to work on improving myself, becoming more competent, becoming a better leader, um, when I wasn't at this level. At this level, it is so clear that no matter how good I am, no matter how gifted I am, I cannot make this work by myself. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not shaping leaders around me, if I'm not bringing the best and the brightest, if I'm not empowering them and creating a, a, a work environment or helping to create a work environment that actually fostered people being at their best, that I'm not going to be successful. The organization is not going to be successful. We don't move this organization and this field forward. That wasn't a big eye opener for me because, listen, most of the time, yeah, I was had I was always part of team. But I was a one man show. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I thought no one could do it as good as me. And, and, and I, I, I didn't delegate much, and I put a whole lot of time in putting my mark on everything. And at this level, especially for uh, an organization which is as broad as this one is, and it's, we're very successful, and we have lots of, uh, we have a really solid brand <laughs> all over the, the nation and the world, and, and it takes a lot to, to keep that going, uh, I had to invest a lot more in the people around me. I've always worked hard but never harder than now. I've always worked long hours, but never longer than now, never. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that isn't what I envisioned, <laughs> you know, when I was a counselor and a drug tech, uh, when I was uh, a supervisor. You know, there is more flexibility, that's great. But the flexibility usually means I'm here a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And I'm usually the first one here, and often the last one to leave. Um, it's the demands of the work. Uh, it is both 
the people who work here, the work itself. Uh, I'm a I'm the chief operating officer. So while, you know, yes, I need to be concerned about vision in the big picture, that's really the CEO's job. I've got to know what that vision is and make it happen at this level. Uh, and that uh, requires an investment that, um, that I had to learn, and, and I, I didn't expect it. So it's working for me, um, but um, the people who I work with one-on-one, who want to be at this level, uh, I really urge them uh, to, to think about that and be sure they know what that means. And, and, uh, um, and if you have the right skill set, and it's, all, and it's for something you really care about, I, I highly recommend it. Um, um, but it's not the easy road. You know, it's, you often have to make decisions that, um, um, where there are no real good options. Uh, and sometimes, you know, especially in my role, in most organizations, the COO, you know, um, if things aren't going well, if people need to be let go, that, that falls on my lap. And, um, and, and the decision that had to be made operationally and otherwise that you make at this level. Uh, so, I, again, listen, I don't, I'm not discouraging anybody, but I, I do think it is, uh, it, is, it is service and there are burdens associated with it um, that sometimes are, are counterbalanced by, by flexibility and, mm-hmm. and the ability to influence what happens. Um, but it does need to be something um, that you really want to do. So I'm going to try to throw you a curve. All right. This is my last question right. uh, for you. Uh, go back to tech Terrence yes. at that stage yeah. of your life. Sure. And you're not necessarily speaking to you, but you're speaking to someone who they're like at the lowest. It's aspiration. There's gifts there they've identified. But they're trying to figure out you know, what's next. Yeah. And this person goes into a Chinese restaurant. Oh, wow. This is a curve. Yeah, a curve. <laughs> Dinner is over. All right. And they bring the fortune cookies. Yeah. They, they open up the fortune cookie. What does it need to say to them? What's the message they need to hear in wow. that moment wow. to find the courage to keep going? It, it, it's going to have to be kind of a long fortune cookie. A little string. All right. A couple, little a, a couple strings. All right. Because <laughs> this reminds me a little bit, not the same, but a little bit. And I don't want to be a spoiler for your book, but toward the end of your book, in fact, the end of your book, you, 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 you put something out there about what your picture of courage is like. And if this is a spoiler, just edit this out. What would a picture of courage look like? If you drew it, yeah. what would it look like? So it's kind of the same question to me. Because okay. I thought about that. And I don't think in pictures, I think in words. Uh, but I saw a picture of a plaque or a sign that has been in almost every workplace I've been in. Because I've always worked in the recovery environment, uh, addiction recovery. And it's a sign that has the words, um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. And so that fortune cookie should say, you know, the courage to change the things I can. Wow. And for me... (laughs) always That's starts good. inside. Man. That's good. It always starts inside. And then in my environment, in my workplace, in my own practice, and depend on my influence at every level I am, what can I change that needs to change? Um, what, 
what what is is in it, and how I know the difference. I, I that's that's what I'd want you know my fortune to have said back then, and that's what I hope for every emerging leader out there um, that they and it does start though inside uh, with the courage to change, the courage to confront, the the courage to accept and challenge sometimes who I am and what's inside of me. Um, because to the extent that I've been able to do that, in some ways I wish I had your book when I was a lot younger, but to the extent that I've been able to do that in my life, um, it has uh, demonstrably impacted uh, my success, my effectiveness in leading people and organizations. My guest on this episode of the Leading Well Green podcast has been Terrence Walton. We could go for hours. I know we can. <laughs> but I thank you for taking the time. And I know I'm better for this exchange. And I know the audience will be better for it as well. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Great conversation with Terrence Walton about his work with the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. If you want to find out more about NADCP, check out NADCP.org. That's NADCP.org. You can also get your copy of Leading While Scared with Terrence's Forward at PRCQuinn.com slash scared. That's PRCQuinn.com slash scared. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.